some new deal that Comcast has for uh, telephone and internet, and uh, we have Comcast, telephone and internet, and I looked at that, and I went to, went to pay my bills, and I realized I was paying way too much. And so, uh, you know, I'm locked in a deal on the satellite for the TV, but uh, I called them up and said, oh, yes, you're a valued customer. We'll be glad to put you on this new plan and got this new high-speed service and this high-speed router, will or a router that we'll include. And, and uh, no problem, get a little information, boom, you just take your old modem right down to that customer service place and get your new one and away you'll go. I thought, all right. So, you know, 50 megabits download, here I come, you know. So I take my modem down there, I get my new modem, I come back and I hook it up and I try to do what it says. And it just keeps shaking its head saying, no, 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 I don't know you. And finally, on the piece of paper they gave me from the customer service place, I saw it says, call this number to activate your service. <laughs> okay, so I called this number. Give me your phone number, your name, your address, the last four of your social security. Give me the numbers on your modem. Dial this phone number. That didn't work. Now try it with a one. Well, that works. Now call me back to make sure it works. Now go back to the original phone you were talking to me on. Now tell me when your modem goes off. Tell me when all four lights are on the modem. Now hold your tongue just so and twirl in a circle. <laughs> but boom, you're online. <laughs> Man, that was an hour and a half of my life I'll never have back. <laughs> Where's my smart son-in-law when I need him there, my computer guy? I have good news for you today. Developing your prayer life is not so complicated as getting new internet service. In a few sentences, Jesus gives us an outline of all the important principles that will enable us to have a vibrant communion with him in prayer. Let's stand and read the scripture together as we did last week. And read this summary of his teaching on prayer. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, Pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and say, please tell us how to talk to you. Please help us to understand these words of Christ in a way that will change and enlarge our prayer life. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we considered the first half of this passage. We've spent a couple of weeks here actually, but we reviewed and considered these truths as and the first part of the Lord's Supper. In verse 5 to 6, we understand that prayer must be God-focused. It's not about me getting attention for myself. It's about me talking to God and God getting the attention. Secondly, we learn that prayer must be God-comprehended. We must say, who am I talking to? What causes him to answer prayer? According to this, he does not answer prayer because we say it a lot. It's not just a lot of words repeated a lot or some ritual it's not just repeating the Lord's Prayer that is like a magic formula that gets answered. Um, it is talking to God as our Father. In verse 9, we learn that prayer must be God-connected. We must be a child of God praying to God our Father in order to have the right and the privilege of prayer. God does not hear the prayers of everyone. The first prayer that he hears from an unbeliever is the prayer of salvation. We know that for certain. God may do things in response to some prayers, but he has no obligation to us. He's obligated because he's our Father. In verses 9 and 10, we learn that prayer must be God-exalting. God-exalting. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And we came down to this conclusion. How do we know if, how can we know that we are praying in a way that exalts God? It comes from God's word. We need to read the book, know the book, live the book, and pray the book, the Bible. God tells us what to pray and how to pray by telling us how to live. Now as we go on to verse 11 this week, we're going to understand this. Prayer must be God-dependent. Look at verse 11 with me. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm going to put you on the spot today. I want, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in a minute. And I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you this. Did you pray for your daily, did you ask God to provide your food today? Would you raise your hand? Okay, a few. You know, I didn't either. Because my refrigerator's full. And my freezer's full. And my cupboards are full. Have there been times in your life when your refrigerator wasn't full and you were praying for your daily bread? <laughs> yeah. 
I think there's an inference here that we need to really strongly consider, and that's this. Prayer must be God-dependent. If I ask the question this way, do you depend on God to provide your food? Is that really part of your heart and your mind and your soul? Are you living in such a way that you, that you, you believe God is the one who provides? And when there is a need, you ask God. God-dependent prayer believes that God intends to meet our needs. Do you believe that? Philippians 4.19, the Apostle Paul, in, the, in a passage where he's talking about his needs, his needs as a, we would call a missionary, traveling around, not having a means to support himself. When he writes it, he's in, he's in under house arrest. He can't, as uh, far as we know, he couldn't work, he couldn't support himself. He was dependent on other people, and God's working through them. And here's, here's his testimony. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He says that to the Philippians in thanks for their gift. He says, you've sent me a gift. You've provided for me. God's going to provide for you. Do you believe that God intends to meet your needs? We talked last week about praying the book. And that's what we're told to do in regard to our needs. God wants to sustain our physical life. And so, do we pray for our basic needs? Do you pray about job security? Do you pray when there's union management trouble? You know, job security does not come from a written piece of paper. It comes from God deciding that you're going to have a job or not have a job. I had a friend at my church in Seattle who was an IT professional, for lack of a better term, a computer guy. And uh, he got laid off from a place, so he, he got a new job. He went to work at a place that had a big IT department. And uh, he, he's kind of a hardware configuration specialist, putting servers in, taking them out. And, you know, he's not a programmer per se, but he has certain specialties. Really a nice guy and really sharp with all this stuff. And so he gets hired. He's the low man in the totem pole. Shortly after he got hired, they said, we're going to completely reorganize this. And, you know, we're not going to do our own uh, programming anymore. And so they let everybody go except the boss and him. Okay. And he gave testimony to the fact that he believes God did that because he was consistently honoring the Lord with, with his giving, with his serving, and so on. Last hired, still there 15, 20 years later. He has more vacation than I have work. <laughs> I mean, I call him up still with my IT problems. Say, hey, what's going on? And I say, where are you? Well, I'm, I'm in Hawaii doing a little pro computer configuration, you know, whatever. Do you believe God wants to take care of your physical life? Now, I would readily admit that God doesn't always want to take care of it exactly the same way you think it needs to be taken care of. Do you pray when you need a job? Young people, do you pray for your needs? Whatever it is you think you need in your physical life, do you pray for it? Are you praying for money for college? When a medical bill comes and we don't know how to pay it, we should pray. 
when the roof leaks and we don't know how to afford the fix, we should pray. When there's too much month and not enough money, we should pray. Now, I'm not saying that our prayer life should be all about our physical needs, but let's not go the opposite way and think, oh, I'm not going to bother God with this. Maybe what we really mean is, you know, I have to take care of this. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Humility is a virtue. Pride is a vice. Pride is a sin. Are we humble enough? Are we concerned to exalt God enough to pray for our physical, daily, normal human needs? If we are, then our prayer is God-dependent. Second thing that we learn here is that prayer must be God-imitating. Look at verse 12 in Matthew 6. Verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This answers the question, when does God not answer prayer? This is one of the answers to that question. In verse 12, the word debt is not speaking about financial obligations. We tend to, you know, debt to us only means one thing. It means money. You know, either you're loaning it out or you're in debt to somebody else for it. But the concept of debt here really follows the older use of this word when, we might, when a person might have said, I am in your debt. In other words, you've done something for me. I, I have a debt of gratitude for, to you. I, I owe you a favor in return, that sort of thing. You see, verse 14 and 15 really carries this thought and helps us to understand the intent of the word debt. Verse 14 and 15 almost sounds like like it was added on at the end by accident, but it's not. If you forgive men their trespasses. Now the word trespass is a synonym for sin. You know, when people, people sin against you, they hurt you or whatever. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you if you do not forgive their trespasses. And so we put that together with verse 12 and we understand the debt that he's talking about here is a moral debt, a sin debt. We're crying out to God saying, God, I am in debt to you because of my sin. Please forgive my sin. And he says, please forgive my sin as I forgive other people's sins. When we are, when we sin, we are in debt to God. And when others sin against us, they're in debt to us. And what does God say we are to do with those debts? Right here. What's he say? Forgive. Could God really mean if we don't forgive, he won't forgive us? Could it be that simple and that terrifying? It seems pretty plain. Let's look at another passage of Scripture. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or or made seen. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. For if 
For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know, we know that we are born again. We know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we said a prayer when we were four years old? No, because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Now, I I know full well that some people would say, well, I don't hate people. I just don't forgive them. Look, there's no middle ground for God. Either you are loving them and forgiving them, as part of love, or you are not loving them. Now, this passage is not trying to teach us that you earn salvation, but it is a reflection of the condition of our soul. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, put it this way, if we will not forgive, we are not Christians. This is a frightening statement, but it's true. For when God's grace comes into our hearts, it makes us forgiving. These are hard words, but they're graciously hard words, especially needing to be heard by the religious person who can state all the answers, who attends church, who leads an outwardly moral life, but who holds a death grip on his grudges. Another commentator put it this way, if one is really saved, he knows God's forgiveness and cleansing in such a personal way that he cannot refuse to forgive others for their faults. Our model for forgiveness is God himself. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. How did God forgive you? Did he say, crawl down the aisle and beg and plead and tell me what a vile person you are and then maybe I'll think about it. No. When you confessed Christ as Savior and and admitted that you were a sinner, did God look down from heaven and say, that's the best you got? Is that all the words you're going to say? Look at all the life you've been living, come on. Jesus on the cross let go of the debt owed to him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Did those people owe him? Oh, you bet they did. God let go of your debt when you ask for salvation. God lets go of our debt every time we confess. Does God ever hold a grudge? Now, I've had a lot of Christians talk to me about events in their life and say, I believe God is punishing me. I got news for you. God does not punish a Christian. Will God let you suffer the results of your sinful choices sometimes? Yes, he will. Is that him punishing you? Or is that him allowing you to figure out who you're going to follow next time? Does God forgive immediately? Yes. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. Does God ever say, you've gone so far that you can't be forgiven? 
No, he does take us home in judgment. He does take people home in judgment, but he doesn't exclude them from heaven and forgiveness. If we would be like God in our relationships, we should not take offense to begin with because we're constantly thinking the best of other people. We're assuming that they are acting righteously, and so we refuse to become offended. But when there is a hurt, we should be so concerned for others that we go and tell them their fault, and when they admit they're wrong, we forgive. And when someone comes to ask forgiveness, we should be so happy to maintain good relations that we can't say, I forgive fast enough. So here's the point at which we need to stop and take our own spiritual pulse. You know, that's how they figure out, are you alive? Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Test yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? We need to take forgiveness seriously. Because God takes it seriously. Obviously, he does. If we are in Christ, forgiveness should be normal for us. If you're not willing to forgive those who wrong you, then at least you are a sinful believer, and at worst, you may not be a child of God at all. Either way, here's the moral to the story. God won't hear your prayer. A lack of forgiveness means God won't hear your prayer. And so... The prayer model is, God, I am forgiving, and I am asking you to forgive me. And that kind of righteousness results in him hearing that prayer. The next part of prayer is this. Prayer must be God-confident, verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom of power. The word temptation is the same word that's translated trial or test. We just saw the word. This word right here is the same word for temptation here. I'm not sure why it gets various translations except by the context. And typically when a, you know, words have shades of meaning and so in different contexts they'll be translated different ways. And the reason this is important here is because we know there's other scripture like James chapter 1 which says God does not tempt anyone with evil. But God does lead us into testing. And James chapter 1 says we should count it all joy when we fall into various trials. John chapter 6, Jesus tested Philip. But in the context here, the, the, the big point is this. The person who is praying is saying, I don't want to sin. And so what is being prayed for is the ability to avoid sin. Every test brings with it the opportunity to do righteously or sinfully. And it would appear that what God is telling us to pray for is to say, God, please protect me in the times of testing so that I do not fall under the influence of the evil. Some translations put it the evil one. It could probably best just translate it the evil, the evil that's inherent in that temptation. 
I think this is parallel to, to uh, it's parallel to Jesus' words here in Matthew 26. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation or testing. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When did Jesus say those words? In the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said it to the disciples. He said, I'm going to go over here and pray. You guys should sit here and pray so that you don't fall into and under the influence of the test that's about to come. Maybe if he'd have said, in just a short while, you're going to be stretched to the ultimate. You better be praying, buddy. But he didn't say that. He just said it quite generically, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And just about an hour before he gave this instruction, he said these words. Simon, Simon, or Peter, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me. You know, sometimes all we need to do to understand the Bible is to read it real slow. I have prayed that your faith should not fail. Okay, we get that. But what's the next phrase say? When you have returned to me? So you're implying there's going to be a a moving away. There's going to be some problem between us. Yes. But your faith isn't going to fail. Somehow I think that's what this prayer in the Lord's Prayer is getting towards. Saying, oh God, please protect me in the times of testing. I don't want to fall away from you. I don't want to come under the the constant um, influence of evil. When you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. What kind of talk do we call that? What's the fancy word for that? Braggadocia. Yeah, I am ready to go all the way. And in fact, he wasn't ready to go anywhere. I mean, he did get out his sword in the garden, but after that... When Jesus is arrested, they all ran away, literally, and then they kind of snuck around and found where he was. And, and Jesus said to him, in response to this big brag, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times. Now, I'm a little thick sometimes. You can ask my wife if you don't believe it. But, If the Lord of glory said, you are going to deny me before the cock crows, and then an hour later he said, you should watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation, I'd like to think that I would watch and pray and not fall into temptation. But you know, if the Apostle Peter did it, I probably would too. And what did Peter do? Now, and here, here, here's, here's what he did. He fell asleep. And I'd probably fall asleep before he would because I'd be tired. And of course, you know, he said, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. And that's what the Lord's Prayer is saying. Are you praying about your spiritual life? Are you praying about your spiritual life? Do you need to pray to escape temptation? I think the answer is yes. Do you have a go-to plan, which is, 
when that familiar temptation presents itself, you go to prayer. You know, there's only two things, there's only two kinds of conversation that happen when temptation comes. One is your internal discussion about why or why not you shouldn't, shouldn't do this. And the other is you're talking to God. And if my experience is any, any kind of validity, the internal talk doesn't help. But the talk to God does. To say, God, I need help here. This is wrong. You know, in fact, as soon as I start praying, my mind goes off the temptation and on to God. Could it be that simple? Deliver us from evil. Peter's prayerlessness resulted in him denying the Lord three times, becoming famous for something none of us would want to become famous. But there's another famous fellow we need to think about too. The Pharisee went to the temple to pray, and he stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not as much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. If we don't think that we need to pray about our spiritual life, we're like the Pharisee. Yeah, I can handle this. I'm not like other men. Really? Jesus seemed to think the ground was level at the foot of the cross. That's why Hebrews 10, 12 says, To him that thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. We need to pray about our spiritual life. We need to confess our sin when it happens, and we need to take a time for confession when we open the Word in the morning and get ready to read and pray. And we need to identify areas of spiritual growth, and they ought to be on our prayer list. Prayer must be God-confident. I believe God can meet my physical and spiritual needs, and I will show that belief by praying about those things. The last point that Christ makes in his prayer is this. Prayer must be God-exalting, and I put again. And the reason I did that is, how does the prayer start in verse 9? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. How does it end, verse 13? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It starts talking about the greatness of God, and it ends talking about the greatness of God. We must pray believing that God has enough power to answer our prayers. He says, do not lead us into temptation, deliver us from evil, because yours is the kingdom and the power. In other words, you have this ability. As the apostles preached, this is a little excerpt from a sermon, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power 
who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed for the devil, for God was with him. Do you believe that God is with you, that God is interested in answering your prayer? In James chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives to all liberally, but ask in what? Faith. Do you believe God has the power needed to answer your prayer. If you don't, why are you wasting your time? One of the, one of the most faith-stretching activities I'm involved with is counseling. Counseling is not about me having answers for people. It's about God changing people's lives. And frankly, many, many times... I sit with people, look across the desk and say, you know, this, this really needs to be a miracle of change. And they go, yeah, if, if this person was to act this way or that way, wouldn't that be a miracle? Yeah, that would be a miracle. That's right. And who does miracles? Us fundamentalists have forgotten that God does miracles. We think he only does miracles in the charismatic churches. And half of them are bogus. You know why God does things in the charismatic churches? Because they ask and they believe. It's not because they have some special gift. But they just think God can do anything. Wow, there's some rocket science. When you go to prayer, do you believe God can do anything? Do you really believe it? Now, I know sometimes we've been praying for the wrong thing, and God just keeps going, no, no, no. So after a while, we think, well, God can't do everything. No, no, the problem is we're not praying for God's glory. We're not praying for his kingdom. And we may need to modify some of our prayers, maybe a lot of our prayers. But when we start getting in the book and getting that stuff into our prayers, we realize God can do things. We must understand that God uses his power in ways that bring him glory. He has the power necessary, but he uses that power in ways that bring him glory. We have this treasure, the treasurer of Christianity, of being a child of God, of being born again. We have this treasure in an earthen or a clay pot so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. The clay pot is not able to withstand a lot of pressure. It breaks. And he says, we're like a clay pot. We're not that strong. But God did that on purpose. So that when things happen, people will look and go, how can you do that? And you will say, it's because God is in this clay pot. It's not me, it's him. Sometimes God's timing seems slow and, 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 and the pressure is on and we're saying, what's God doing? You know, when Lazarus died, Jesus knew he died and he stayed right where he was for four days. 
And if, if the people around him and around Lazarus had known everything we know now, they'd have been going, what in the world? Jesus came and he, and, and he basically said, look, I'm doing this for you guys. Come forth! And he came out. And they went, wow, God can do anything. But when he did that, there was no doubt he did that. And God is going to answer prayers in your life in a way so that you will look up to heaven and say, God, you have done this. The sooner you can get your mind and heart around that, the sooner your prayers will be answered more because you'll be praying more for things that honor him. I, I don't like to be in a position of needing a miracle. It's great to talk about miracles, but if you need a miracle, that means things are a little tough. And I'd rather it just be easy all the time. But God knows that's not the way for me to become like Christ. And so he lets things be hard. And, and, and I pray, and, and then when he does things, I go, wow, look what God did. When God is slow, when God seems slow, it's because he's creating a way for his greatness to be seen. Recently, one of our, uh, we both got frustrated with one of our kitchen drawers, you know? And that means one of us has a job to do. <laughs> we have a general contractor and we have a day laborer in our house. <laughs> And, uh, and so I, I kind of got myself all mentally set. I thought, I'm going to have to take, you know, unfortunately, I had built the drawer. And so what that usually means when it doesn't work right is it usually means I didn't do something quite right. I know that's hard for you to believe, too. So I kind of got myself all set. I thought, boy, this is going to, oh, I'm going to have to take this thing apart. I'm going to have to cut it down or do something to it. So I opened it up, though, and I, I kind of looked it all over real good. And I thought, the glide on that thing is metal on metal. I wonder what a little WD-40 would do. Boy, just like new. I said, yes, thank the Lord. It was so awesome. I let the maintenance go on the drawer. I could have done that a year ago. I could have been enjoying that drawer for a year. Or two, I don't know how long. I just thought that's just the way it is. It just doesn't work too good. How's your prayer life working? Is it, is it really sliding and going? Or are you just fighting it? I hope you'll take this word of Christ and review the way that you pray and the content of your prayers and say, Jesus I need to pray better, because I want to see your power. Let me give you a, a, some ideas for that. Start by praying more. If you pray for one minute a day, make it two. If you pray for five, make it seven. I, you know, I, and I know probably most of you have kind of an ongoing conversation with God. If you don't have that ongoing conversation, get it started. But get down there in the morning or in the evening and get your prayer list and say, God, here are all the concerns of my heart. And don't worry about whether it's two minutes or five minutes or ten minutes or an hour. Just pour out your heart to God. 
Make a list of all the important people in your life and the important situations in your life and pray for at least a few of them every day systematically. You know, I didn't used to pray for my kids every day. Back in, back in high school when I realized that because they were never a problem. <laughs> when there was a problem, I would pray. And that's not good enough. When there's no problem, I need to still pray. And so I wrote their names down. And so there's a regular, and even now, they're on my prayer list a couple times during the week, and and I'm praying for them all. I pray for them all every Sunday morning because I want them to go to church and get something good out of it. I know it happens for a couple of them, but I don't know about the others. (laughs) But I won't remember to pray for them if I don't write their name down. I don't know how good your memory is. Write down your prayer request. Make a list. Take the list that's in the bulletin today of people in the church and pray for them. And even if you don't know them, you can pray this stuff out of the Lord's Prayer for them. Write the word pray on a sticky note and put it on some place that you see several times a day. If you're, if you're driving around a lot, if you're at the refrigerator, wherever you are several times a day, just put the thing that says pray. Just pray. Just stop and take 30 seconds and talk to God. And see if God won't do some more things to bring him honor. And I guarantee you, folks, if God honors himself around you, you're going to get blessed beyond what you think you would if you got the stuff that you're asking for. Heavenly Father, Honor yourself around us and in us and through us. Help us to be praying people, people who really believe in you, who know that you have all the power and who want to see your glory manifest right here in Ferndale and the western side of this county. Thank you for our day of prayer. Help us to have more of those days. Help us all to be consistent prayers and godly biblical prayers. Help us to honor you with our prayer life and with all of our life. I pray in Christ's name, amen.